0: There we go. there we go. Welcome back to church, everybody. Yeah, the plagues. The, the Bosch team messaged me in the week, and they were like, hey, Kyle's 's first Sunday back, um, so we want to the tone we want to go for is high celebration, high joy." And I said, "Have you read? Have you read the text? Have you read the text?" Um, but I do believe that there is much to celebrate, and there is, um, there is great joy to be found and stuff to celebrate in, in um, the story today. but uh, Ryan set me up there and, normally I have an iPad. Friday afternoon I had an iPad. 18 months before that I had a son. <laughs> Friday afternoon we try to do some nice things for our child. We got one of those plastic shells, put some water on our little balcony, went inside quickly, came back, realized my, bap- my, my son's um, theological convictions on baptism, <laughs> full immersion, and, and there goes my iPad. And I, I did everything. I've done the rice. I've done hair dryers. Um, nothing's happening. Um, Andre from Weinberg um, has quite a history of praying for technology. So, and I'm going to see him on Wednesday. So I said to him before I left, I'm going to try one last thing, which is see if Andre, the bishop from Weinberg, can pray it back to life. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, there's an offering. We'll take up an offering. Um, the C Point. I'll put the C Point giving codes up, and then we can go for it. Um, But uh, yeah, my name's Kyle, Um, I'm married to Michelle, we're both involved uh, in Seapoint. We were actually, we were part of Bosch PM for uh, whatever it was, 13 years or so before we moved to the city earlier, uh, two or three years ago, and we've got a little boy called Harrison, I should have... Brought a photo. I didn't, um, but we actually live on the the property of the Seapoint Congregational Church, which is where we meet. Um, so I don't know if this will ring true, but I call myself the Kennedy Caponda of of Seapoint because I live on the on the base, and it's a it's a beautiful thing. And Kennedy, I have something in common there, which is great. So um, we are in Exodus, as as Ryan has said, and uh, I really do think that for us as Christ followers, there's going to be a lot for us to strengthen ourselves with and take courage from and, and recognize, no, this is who our God is, this is, this is, this is, this is stuff that I can bank my life on, um, and if you're exploring Jesus today, I think you are going to get a, a window, a stark window into uh, who God is, and I trust that this will set you up in your exploration journey of the things of um, faith and Jesus and spirituality, and, and I hope I can live up to this promise, but I, I want to guarantee you, I don't think you'll be bored. Um, you would have heard the text there, and you might feel many things by the end of this message. Um, you might be mystified. You might be outraged. You might be petrified. Um, you might be ready to change your whole worldview and follow Jesus, which is, which is cards on the table. That would be my um, hope for you. Um, but I don't think you'll be bored by the time we get to the end of this. So what's the story so far? What's the story so far? Um, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, have been under harsh Egyptian slavery for 400 years. And they have uh, grown up in this land now. They're a nation within a nation, essentially. And they're a group of probably around 2 million people. Um, and their conditions have actually gotten worse recently, uh, as they've been told that they need to produce more bricks to uh, build the great Egyptian architecture all around. They need to produce more bricks, but they're not going to be given straw to be able to build the bricks. Now, the straw would reinforce the bricks, kind of like steel reinforces concrete, I'm told, by the engineers. Um, and so they've been—they've been given this new edict now, and so they're going to have to go and source uh, straw in their own time um, and produce uh, more bricks with less straw and less time. And so that's more hours of hard labour, under Egyptian whips, terrible rations, and basically just a completely hopeless situation. That's where they find themselves. And the truth, though, is throughout all of this, God's been at work. God's been at work. He's been working a plan to redeem his people out of bondage. The key figure in all of this has been Moses, uh, the person that God has chosen, one of the Hebrews, who's actually spent the the first several years of his life actually growing up as an Egyptian prince. You would have heard a lot of this in the last few weeks, and God's chosen him to be the instrument of the deliverance of his people. And last week, we saw the story of the burning bush, and God revealed himself To Moses as I am who I am or. For short, I am. It's where we get the name Yahweh that we would have heard uh, in the text as it was read. And in your Old Testament, if you're reading your English Old Testament, you're going to see hundreds of times in there, in capital letters, the Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized. And that is the translation of God's name, Yahweh. And so I'm going to use Yahweh a lot today, uh, just because I think what's helpful is often we we hear the English word God, and we even hear the English word Lord. And it's become so familiar to us in our context and in our sort of Western world world, that you can kind of fill that word with, with anything you want, and it's, it's, it's whatever God you kind of imagine, but it might not be the, the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself as Yahweh. And so what's happened is, um, after he revealed his name to, to Moses, he sent Moses and Aaron into Pharaoh um, to to provoke him to get Pharaoh to let his people go. And to be honest, this act, when Moses and Aaron went in, it's this act that actually escalated things and has brought in the new edicts of more bricks, less straw, etc. And so tensions are actually mounting all around. Tensions are mounting all around. There's pockets of hope that Yahweh is on the move, but there's plenty of naysayers who are now obviously blaming Moses for actually making things worse and bringing in worse conditions for them. And um What we would have just seen in the story before the text that was read today is um, Moses and Aaron go in to confront Yahweh. They say the famous words, uh, sorry, they go in to confront Pharaoh. You don't confront Yahweh. They go in to confront Pharaoh and they say the famous words, let my people go. Let my people go go. And they prove the power of God by throwing a staff onto the ground that turns into a snake, showing the miraculous powers of God. And then the Egyptian uh, miracle workers and, and magicians see it, and they throw their sticks on the ground, and they also turn into snakes. But then what happens is Aaron's sort of staff snake consumes their staff snakes. And there's a clear picture of who's the God that's large and in charge. It will be Yahweh. And Basically today, that confrontation is going to continue, and that confrontation is going to escalate. And Ian left it on a bit of a cliffhanger last week, and so we're going to come in now, and we are going to explore um, this showdown in many ways, uh, as God is going to bring the 10 plagues upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh um, in order to get Pharaoh to let his people go. And so we're going to try and actually sum up four chapters of Exodus today, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, and we've read um, the first plague out of the ten that 's what um, was was read for us, and the the idea with just reading it is to, so you can get a bit of a flavor, you can get a sense we 're not going to be able to read all ten, but we 're going to get a sense of of what this must have looked like, what this must have felt like, what you must have experienced if you were a very real um, Israelite or Egyptian on the ground three thousand years ago, and so we're going to now look high level at the first nine plagues. We're going to leave the 10th plague, the Passover, for next week. We're going to look high level at the nine plagues, and we're going to kind of explore them through uh, four themes or four titles, which is the following. The knowledge of Yahweh, the judgment of Yahweh, the mercy of Yahweh, and the servant of Yahweh. So that's, that's where we're going. That's our little road map. And so let's just jump in together with the first one, the knowledge of Yahweh, the knowledge of Yahweh. I want to put to you that one of God's chief purposes um, in all that he does is to make himself known, is to make himself known. And I want to say that's a good thing. If if you are the most awe-inspiring, powerful being in the world, then creating people and creating spiritual beings to experience you and enjoy you um, is a brilliant, fantastic, loving act. I would put that before you. And today, by the time we get to the end of our story, after all the plagues have come upon uh, Egypt, no one is going to be left unaware of who the greatest, most powerful, most glorious being is. He's making himself known, and he's very explicit about this. Here's just a couple of examples. Exodus 7, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Later on, thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I'll strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. There should be some slides coming up somewhere, sorry. Um, Exodus 9. For this I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. None like me in all the earth. Yahweh is making Himself known, and this is behind all His acts, from the beginning of creation to uh, the return of Jesus and the, the inauguration of the new creation. This is what He's doing. This is what He's about. He's made Himself known through acts of creation, through His acts of judgment, through His acts of mercy, through the words of the prophets, through the words of the apostles, through the coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth in flesh, and through all the written words of Scripture. God is making himself known. He has revealed himself. And what does this mean? It means that, as I said earlier, he's not a generic God. He's not a God that you can just make up. And if if you want to do that, that's fine. But, but that be on your own head. That be on your own head. Because the bottom line is whatever culture says or thinks or even what you and I might feel about God at the end of the day, actually counts for nothing, if I, if I can just be, be frank. Because either you're probably just creating a God in your own image, it's some sort of figment of your imagination that you are worshipping, or, to be honest, what I think is scarier, perhaps you are actually worshipping a very real spiritual being, just a different one, just a different one. And we'll touch on that a bit later, but I think that's the more scary of the two options. So God is making himself known, and God has made himself known, and so we want to be people who listen and take him at his word. That's the first thing. The knowledge of Yahweh is being revealed in these plagues. But secondly is the judgment of Yahweh. The judgment of Yahweh. So, these plagues, they, they come. the first nine at least, come in three cycles of three. Three cycles of three. So let me, just, let me just quickly read them. Cycle number one, we've got the Nile turned to blood, which is what we've already read. We've got the frogs, and we've got the gnats that are going to come out of the ground and terrorize the land. So that's cycle one. Cycle two, flies are going to spread all over the land of Egypt. The Egyptian cattle are going to die. And then boils are going to break out on the bodies of the Egyptians. And then cycle three... There's going to be hail that comes from the heavens. There's going to be a plague of locusts that terrorizes the crops. And then lastly, darkness is going to be found for seven days over the whole land of Egypt. So those are the, those are the nine plagues. And um, there's a couple of questions we've got to ask here in these judgments. is What is God showing of himself in these plagues. If he is making himself known, if that's what he's doing through these judgments, what do we learn about him? What is he trying to communicate? And the first is this. I mean, there's probably a whole bunch. Let me just throw out three. The first is this, is that he is sovereign over all other gods. He is sovereign over all other gods. He's displaying that he is the God of gods, the true God, the Lord of lords, not the Egyptian gods, not Pharaoh himself, who would have been considered a god in many ways. And what's happening here is each... Uh, individual plague is attacking a specific Egyptian deity. And so just look at the first one, seeing as we've read that. Um, why turn the Nile into blood? Maybe you've asked that question before. Why turn the Nile into blood? What's, what's happening there? Well, the Nile Delta uh, was and still is in many ways the, the, the economic heart of, of that area. It's a lot of desert land around there. And so the Nile um, allows the crops to grow and feeds the the, the livestock. And the Egyptians worshipped... Uh, The the deity called Harpy or Happy, I don't know which, um, and so Happy sounds funnier, so I'm going to go with that. They worshipped Happy, who was the Nile God, and they would have had statues of him. They would have uh, done a whole bunch of tributes towards him. And by turning the Nile into blood, in many ways, Happy is bleeding out in front of the people who worship him. God is attacking their God uh, literally by wrecking the power that that God has over the people. They think, they think that happy is the one who can provide for them, who can keep their empire going, and so God cuts him right at his very heart. That's what's happening here across all these plagues. And here's a question that might come to many of us in the room right now. These gods, these belief systems that the Egyptians held to, were these real spiritual beings, or were they uh, just sort of, Idols of Of wood and stone that had no real spiritual value, but they just believed in them it 's an interesting question it 's a good question I would say it 's quite a western question, um, and the answer in many ways is yes it 's a both and it 's a both and. One of the main plot threads of the whole Bible is the fact that there is a spiritual war happening in the spiritual realm. You get to the, the New Testament. Paul in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, talks about uh, you and I as Christ followers struggling against the heavenly powers. And he's thinking, I think, much more than, than, than demon possession, which is something we, we, we do believe in, but there's so much more going on. There are very real spiritual beings that are active in culture and history and politics. There is an interplay between the seen and the unseen realm. And this works itself out in many ways. Here's two. They both begin with I. Ideologies is one thing. Ideologies are not ultimately just mankind's ideas, and in many ways, they're not just neutral things. Belief systems in the world are the effects, in many ways, of invisible powers. And so we can't ignore them. Paul in Colossians 2 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive, and I love that, because that's exactly what's happening in Egypt. These people are captive. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to both human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, and not according to Christ. So ideologies manifest, but also idols and idolatry, okay? What is that? Idols are created things, Romans 1 tells us, good things that we um, take and we elevate and we devote our lives and our time and our money and our energy and our efforts towards. So this could be things. The big three are are money, sex, and power. I think these are ancient things that have carried their way all the way through to, to the modern world. And what happens is there are very real spiritual beings that that work behind these good things that God has created and causes us to to elevate them, twist them, appeal to our sinful hearts, tempt us to go after them, and we make sacrifices to them, often at the expense of other human beings. Often at the expense of other human beings. Which is exactly, again, what's happening here in Egypt. And what happens is people become, you and I, become enslaved to them. We become enslaved to them. To money, sex, and power, yes, but also to the very real spiritual forces behind them. And so in many ways, it's a, it's a wake-up call to us because we choose to partner with them. We choose to partner with them. But Yahweh's judgment is being revealed, Romans 1 tells us. So that's what's happening here in Egypt. And when it speaks of in the text um, things of wood and things of stone, those words always come up in relation to Idols things that are created, that have real spiritual power behind them. And so Yahweh here, he is smashing the idols of Egypt, but he is also wrecking the very real spiritual powers that are behind them. He's saying, I am the creator God, you are not ultimate, and I am the most powerful being, you are not. And this means he's the God of gods, and he shouldn't be dismissed lightly or disobeyed. That's the bottom line. And God, I think, is so good that even today in our lives, he will come and he'll do the same thing to us. He will pummel the gods in our lives to show that we have um, been enslaved to them, that we actually worship other things, that they have our attention, and that they are actually weak, and he is actually powerful, and he alone is the creator and provider. So that's the first thing I think he's revealing here in his judgment. He is sovereign over all other gods. The second is this, though, is that he is righteous. He's righteous. I don't know, um, but maybe there's a bunch of you in this room right now who are hearing the first plague. You've heard it in stark detail, and you're thinking, sheesh, this sounds very excessive. This sounds very extreme. This sounds hectic. This is harsh. Um, if, If God is making himself known, and this is a display of a great God, you might be struggling with that right now, saying, is this really greatness? Is this really greatness, these, these harsh acts? Um, and I want to say to you, uh, if, if this is you, maybe there's a bunch of things at play. One of them I would possibly say to help diagnose what you're feeling here is the fact that you have grown up either in the West or in Western influence part of the world, where you've grown up in soil based on Judeo Christian values for hundreds of years, and you've appreciated this thing of compassion and this thing of mercy, and it comes from the pages of Scripture. And so that's something that's happening in your heart right now, um, which makes you think, Geez, where's, the, where's the mercy? Where's the compassion? But in that same soil, that same Judeo-Christian soil, is also a love for freedom and a smashing of injustice at the same time, which I think should help counter what you might be feeling there. Because what's happening in this text is Egypt is not innocent. That's huge. Egypt is not innocent. Even on simply a human level, they have enslaved another people group for 400 years based on their ethnicity. So I think there would be a lot of resonance today in our world, in this room right now, that that is an evil thing and they are not innocent in this regard. These are just and righteous judgments against Egypt. But on one level up, the actual worship and devotion of these other gods is the real offense. And it's that worship and devotion that's actually manifested in the culture and the belief system that they are a part of. And so God is at work. Evil and wickedness must be dealt with. But the truth for us today, all of us in this world, on this planet. Is that God actually says to us, actually wickedness and evil is running down the center of every single human heart. We can look at the Egyptians and judge them. But Yahweh says, you are under the same sentence. You have rebelled against me. You have spat in my face. You have rejected me, and you have devoted your lives to other things or other beings. And so all of us are under the righteous wrath and damnation of God. And, And I want to provoke you to get to this point and agree with one theologian that said, at the end of the day, God's judgments in the end will be so absolutely perfect that even the damned will agree with the rightness of their damnation. It's stark, but I think that is true. And we need to trust that God is righteous. But there's more. One more thing that he's revealing here with his judgments is his patience. Is his patience, okay? His judgments are gracious warnings for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to turn, to turn around, to forsake uh, their previous life and their previous beliefs, and their previous treatment of others. And so he repeatedly warns them. His, his wrath and his judgment are mixed and mingled with patience consistently. Every time Moses goes into Pharaoh, and there is a pattern that happens throughout all ten plagues, Moses goes in and he offers Pharaoh the opportunity to change, the opportunity to repent and turn around. Before every single plague comes a plea. Turn. Turn from your ways. Let my people go. Come back. To me, as the God of the world. But the bottom line is, as the plagues go on, Pharaoh is stubborn. And once the final plague hits and judgment finally arrives in its full force, there's no surprise and there's no excuse. Again, God has made himself known. And I think you and I, today, here in this building, we need to let the fact that God um, judges people severely and the fact that he is coming back to judge the whole world and no one's going to get away with anything, we should let that fact both be of great comfort and great fear to all of us. In our our everyday lives, behind closed doors, in the way we treat people, in the way we go about everything in our lives. No one's going to get away with anything at the end of the day. Those are the judgments of Yahweh. There's even some good news mixed in there, but it doesn't end there. We've got a third thing. We've got a third thing that's revealed here, which is the mercy of Yahweh. The mercy of Yahweh. So Exodus 8.22. A little further on in the story, one of the other plagues. Let me just read this quickly. But on that day, this is Yahweh speaking. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Okay, just yourself in in the shoes of these ancient Israelites, and you're hearing this stuff, and you're you're on the ground, this must have been radical. This must have been absolutely radical. You as a people have been waiting to be freed from slavery for 400 years, and you don't know when it's coming, and you don't know what it's going to look like when it it comes, and then all of a sudden, in dramatic fashion, the, 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 the powers, the forces of nature are harnessed by the God of the universe in front of your very eyes. And yet you're standing in your land, in the land of Goshen, and you can possibly see a plague of flies almost like a wall around your entire land for 365 degrees, or 360 degrees, 365 years, 360 degrees all around you. I knew they were close. All around you, you see this wall of flies. I mean, the flies would have probably blotted out the sun. There would have been so many. And yet you can see we are safe in the midst of these judgments it must have been an incredible thing to, to witness. And the Hebrews would have realized something very important here, that all of God's judgments here are not just to make himself known to the Egyptians, but to also make himself known to Israel. They would have seen this is who God is. Look at both his judgment and his mercy for those who call him Lord and God. That is amazing. And the last God out of all these plagues, the last God to fall is, is, is Pharaoh, really. And we're going to discuss that next week when we look at Passover. But one thing I just want to and he stands on behalf of people and represents them to God and vice versa. And in many ways, when Jesus first came 2,000 years ago, he came as many things. One of the things he came as was a mediator. He came to, to, to work between humanity and God and make a way for reconciliation. And he went to the cross on our behalf. He took on the rightful wrath that is is ours to bear. And he came as a slain, sacrificial lamb. We'll we'll unpack that a lot more next week. And he rose again from death. He's now shouting a warning to every single human being, saying, turn from your sin, turn from your ways, turn from worshiping other gods, other religions, turn from, from worshiping created things, turn to me. Turn to me, I've made a way to protect you from the wrath which is coming at the expense of my own blood. I died to make a way for you. Something Moses never did. And when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for human sin. He broke the back of the very real spiritual powers that we've been chatting about today. He broke their back so that they no longer have a hold on you, no longer need to have a hold on you. And we can have strength against them because he has sentenced them once and for all for that day of wrath when it's coming. God has triumphed in Jesus Christ. But when Jesus comes again, he first came as as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion in many ways. He is coming back to judge the living and the dead, the Bible tells us. And on that day, it must be said, I reckon the ten plagues will probably look like child's play. The ten plagues will probably look like child's play. Just listen to John in the book of Revelation as he paints this picture. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaved and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who?" can stand. Who can stand? Yes, this is a warning of judgment, but this is a warning. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, the one who said, trust me, turn to me. I don't want this for you. You have chosen to turn away from me. You have partnered with other spiritual beings. You, in your your sinful nature, have turned and, and made gods out of good things. And the day of judgment is coming, but I have made a way because of my great love, my great mercy for you. And so, just like Jesus said at the opening of the Gospel of Mark, which we've journeyed through for two years repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn, turn. I'm a good God. I'm a good God. Turn to me. I've made a way. Friends, God is powerful over all spiritual beings, over sin, Satan, and death. He has broken their back at the cross and has made a way for each and every one of us to come home to him and be part of his kingdom in a world where there's good news. So the band's going to come back um, and maybe you can stand with me. I'd love to just close in a moment of prayer. You can close your eyes as the band's coming up. And just pray together. And If there's anyone here who came in today, and as I said, I, I don't think you were going to be bored by the end of this message. But you, you came in and you, you've, you've been provoked. You weren't a Christ follower when you walked in here. You've heard a bunch of stuff. And something in your heart is tugging on you saying, this is true. I know this is true. I know, I know this is a true story. Something is resonating in me. God has done something on my behalf. And I need Jesus, if that is you right now, I want to urge you to respond by trusting Jesus, taking him at his word, saying that his death on the cross was enough for you to defeat the powers of darkness that might have had you in bondage and to forgive you of your sin and bring you back home to count you among the people of God to be part of his kingdom forevermore. If that's you, in your heart right now, just respond in prayer and, and you're welcome to come and chat to me afterwards or chat to one of the elders and, and process what's just happened in your life. For the rest of us, let's just pray. Father, this is, this is a, 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 a graphic bunch of scenes, God, but they reveal a powerful, awe-inspiring God who set up this world So that people could live under your rule and reign in human flourishing, having their souls enlarged by basking in the presence of the greatest being in the world. And we have turned against you. We have rebelled against you. We we have partnered with forces of darkness and we have been led astray by our own sin. But you made a way, Jesus, on the cross. You came and judged the forces of darkness. You broke the back of Satan's sin and death. And... At cost to yourself, you have made a way because of your love for us. And so we want to thank you for your justice and for your love. We want to be people who exult in the fact that our God is just. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't wink at evil. No one gets away with anything. And yet at the same time, all of us who were once... Guilty in your sight, can shelter in Jesus. We can be in the land of Goshen and be sheltered from the storm around us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your triumph. And we worship you now as the God who has revealed himself as Yahweh. Let's sing.